Hi folks, in the following homily, it's my hope to invite curiosity about how the nonviolent practice of Jesus applies to our food, our care for animals, and the environment in the natural world, while also acknowledging a diverse community like Vox is going to include lots of different perspectives. And so conversations about plant-based eating uh, is all uh, we are also having that conversation with a lot of sensitivity in mind to those recovering from disordered eating, those living with food insecurity or in food deserts, and we invite those perspectives into the conversation. Our hope as a community is to continue to collaboratively explore multiple ways of practicing the nonviolent love of Jesus with ourselves with one another and with all of creation. So um, with that, uh, we welcome your thoughts. Gosh, it's so great to be with you this morning. I've been really looking forward to this time together. I just love this community so much. And um, So our text for today invites us into a conversation about creation. So animals, plants, the natural world. And the big question before us today is this. What is our relationship to the rest of creation? And so I'll invite you to start thinking about that with me. Uh, Is it a relationship of trust? And if not, how rocky is our relationship with creation? And do we need couples therapy? (laughs) That's the the question we're going to be exploring today. And so let's just acknowledge from the very beginning that this conversation can stir a lot of different feelings in us. And um, that may be because the stakes seems so high. And in a moment, I'll begin by disclosing some of what I feel when I listen to the news of climate scientists uh, talking about the ice caps melting and global temperatures rising and sea levels and rainforest being depleted and animal uh, species going extinct. So let's just welcome those emotions to be in the room with us today. Uh, I'm currently reading the book Sapiens. You may have come across it by Yuval Harari. Uh, I recommend it. It's witty. It's funny. He's not a scientist. He's a historian. And he's identified three major revolutions in the history of humanity. And he, according to Harari, we're currently in the third. So he calls the first one the cognitive revolution, uh, which may have started roughly 100,000 years ago when big-brained humans first started migrating around the planet. Next came the agricultural revolution, which may have started about 10,000 years ago and represents more or less the birth of human history as we know it. And now, according to Harari, we're in the scientific revolution, which may have started around roughly 500 years ago and may well end history. (laughs) Uh, He says there's reason to believe 100 uh, or... Um, in a few hundred years from now, maybe a thousand years from now, it's possible humans will no longer be around. And I'll confess to you that when I first read that, my thought was, and the planet may be better off without us. (laughs) And that's a terrible thought. That's an awful thought. Uh, But at the same time, the driving emotion for me in this conversation is not fear for the future. I do believe the stakes are as high as the scientists are warning us and that we're responsible. But this conversation interests me as someone who cares about reducing violence on the planet today. 
because today humans and non-human animals are suffering and suffering largely from human violence and the byproducts of human violence toward animals and the environment. And it's that violence which is accelerating climate change. And so from where I sit, the stakes are already as high as they possibly could be. And uh, I feel a lot of things, but one of the primary emotions I feel around that idea is excitement and curiosity. My stomach sort of flutters thinking about, could this be the moment in human history where our relationship to the rest of creation could become less violent? And if it's possible that that could happen in our lifetime, how? I'm curious what our part in that might be. Uh, so just to offer some framework, I was asked recently what the word violence means, and you might have your own definition. My thinking about that is informed by the idea that violence is any perceived threat that sends us into our brainstem. So into a fight, flee, freeze, fawn, or fake it posture. And that can be any threat, physical or relational, because to our bodies the impact is more or less the same. And I can trace my interest in nonviolence back to my early childhood. So uh, it's been said that to discover the greatest good we can do with this one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver calls it, we must become intimate with our own story. Uh, Cole Arthur Riley also echoes this when she says, our story points to our unique vocation in the world. And my origin story is of growing up in a violent home, and uh, as many of you may have. So this is me at the top. I think I'm in first grade. And around the time this photo was taken, I resolved with all the fierceness of a six-year-old that so long it was in my power, nobody would ever suffer violence in my presence. And I'm now in my 40s, and Al-Anon is teaching me that there is much in the world that is not in my power to do anything about. Uh, and let's acknowledge, we can feel really powerless, especially when we think about uh, huge corporations and giant financial machines. And at the same time, we cannot underestimate the power of small changes and the cumulative effect we can have collectively. And so I hold this question of our relationship to creation to be a curious and exciting one. I'll say one more thing. Uh, I'm also aware the idea of restoring trust between us and the rest of creation can feel paralyzing in just the magnitude of factors. And we seem stuck in a cycle of violence we don't know how to get ourselves out of, particularly towards animals in the environment. And uh, just to add more distress to the hopelessness, it's not in the nature of violence to resolve itself. So I feel in my body the range of emotions you may be feeling in this conversation. It's been said that those who seek to live a justice-filled life cannot avoid suffering with those who suffer. So uh, maybe the way for us to navigate this conversation is just to remind ourselves we're in this together. <laughs> And so may, perhaps we might take a slow inhale together and just exhale. One more inhale and now exhale loudly. Does that feel good? This is a courageous conversation and I believe in the power of community discernment 
and that we're, we're going to all be in different places around this conversation. So I look forward to learning from your reflections and insights. Um, as we go along today, I'll share with you some of the hope I find in the text from Romans chapter 8 and in the conversations we're already having here at Vox about how the story of Christ restores our trust in nonviolent love, which has the power to change us bodily. And so today I'm going to place before us the idea that it's possible no other creature needs to suffer in order for us to live. This is what I understand to be the heart of the story of Christ. And that potentiality took root in me a few years ago when I was listening back to the story of Scripture, actually starting in Genesis, where we read this. God said, see, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every, seed, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And that first chapter of Genesis concludes, and it was so, and God saw everything that God had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And as I reflected on that idea, I started to wonder, is it possible that human beings along with all the animals of the world could subsist on plants alone. So I'm just going to invite us to become curious. Like, let's just become curious about that idea today. And because my area of focus is on the relationship between neuroscience and theology, I began to ask if we could start moving in that direction of a plant-based food system, a nonviolent food system. Could that possibly be the key to freeing all of us humans, animals, and the environment from this cycle of violence. So just notice with me that animal-based food systems are one of the main sources of pollution, uh, one of the main contributors to climate change, and one of the most violent systems on the planet that we can do something about. And the hopeful news is that there are enough plants on the planet to feed everyone. According to UN predictions, global population will approach 12 billion likely in our lifetime, and then it should level out because poverty rates are declining, medical care and education is improving, and eventually birth and death rates will likely equalize. And nourishing 12 billion humans with plant-based cuisine is entirely within our planet's capacity. In the words of Peter Singer, by ceasing to rear and kill animals for food, we can make so much extra food available for human beings that when properly distributed, it would effectively eliminate starvation and malnutrition from this planet. And cutting out meat would do more to help combat climate change than any other action we could feasibly take in the next 20 years. Is it? possible that this could be what it means to live and enjoy a nonviolent relationship with the rest of creation. So usually in homilies, we save the good news for the end, but I'm going to say it now because I've come to understand this is the heart of Jesus's teachings, that love is intrinsically nonviolent. And that when Jesus said, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice when he cleansed the temple and he overturned the tables and he set the animals free, he was introducing 
this bold new understanding of love, that the suffering of animals for religious purposes is not necessary. And it's this violent structure which Jesus overturned in his day. Is it possible that animal-based food systems is our version of that today? It's an act of great faith to believe that no other creature needs to suffer in order for us to live. And yet I think this may be the nonviolent love that Jesus is inviting us into. So um, let's just continue to be curious about this question together. Could this be a temple cleansing moment? Is it possible the suffering of animals for human food and products is unnecessary and that it's this violent structure which Jesus would have us overturn today? With that juicy question in mind, let's listen together to our text from Romans chapter 8, verse 20, which says this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So reading this, we might become curious. What do we hope for creation to be set free from? Different eras in human history require different solutions. And at the same time, the problem of violence has always been at the core. And I want to suggest that the idea in this text is that creation needs to be set free from us, <laughs> from our misguided notions that violence is unavoidable. This is what I understand Paul to be referring to as our futility. The word futility in Greek holds the idea of like a false purpose. For the creation was subjected to futility, a false purpose. Not by its will, but by us, humans, under the influence of, we might uh, think of the great deception represented by the serpent in the garden. It was that great deception which would have us believe non-human animals exist for human purposes. It's that great deception which would trap us humans in a cycle of violence, which we can't seem to see a way out of. You've heard it said we hold dominion, like power, over other animals, and that for us to live a good life, inflicting violence on them is, is unavoidable. But I say to you, no. Our power over animals is for the purpose of non-violently loving them. And our hope then is that creation itself could be set free from its bondage to our violent ways. If that is true, where did the theological narrative that violence is unavoidable come from? So notice with me that the nonviolent practice of Jesus in the early church, which the early Christians emulated, really only lasted about 300 years. And then at that point, the church was co-opted by Constantine, the emperor. And ever since then, what the rest of us have known as Christianity is more or less a contaminated version of Jesus's nonviolent teachings mixed up with the private agenda of those in power. In the words of J. Denny Weaver, 
the pre-Constantinian church looked to Jesus as the nonviolent norm of practice. And then in that time, being a Christian, therefore, meant to live a life modeled by Jesus. However, once Christianity became the religion of the empire, Christian behavior was judged not in reference to Jesus, but by how it furthered the cause of that empire. And this marked a change in the ethical orientation of the church. So what that means is from Constantine on, if it served the private agenda of the emperor, for instance, for Christians to believe that violence was unavoidable, then that became the norm, even though it was a far cry from Jesus. So let's, let's take another slow inhale together. Let's exhale loudly. I can feel angry about this. The co-opting of Jesus' teachings to serve the private agenda of the empire represents a significant violation of our trust because it makes us complicit then in the violence of that empire. And so we're in a time of reckoning where as we reflect on the nonviolence of Jesus, we may find our trust in the existence of nonviolent love, like like the possibility that it could be real, it could exist for us. Our trust in that nonviolent love is being restored. And I'll say a word about trust. We can think of trust as the physiological phenomenon that floods our bodies with these warm, pleasant neurotransmitters. And you can try this out right now. If you bring to mind the face of a trustworthy loved one, you might notice this calm, soothing sensation that rushes over your body. This is the goodness that we are hardwired to experience. And under the conditions of trust, we function at our optimal best. We have access to the higher parts of our brain. We can make choices then that are more aligned with our most loving intentions. Experiencing relational trust more often in our spiritual practices, in our relationships, in communities like this may be the key to unlocking our ability to begin restoring trust between us and the rest of creation. So perhaps a question for us to reflect on this week might be this. What's a small experiment we'd like to try? Rather than trying to force sweeping changes. I want to say, you can just trust your body. Your body has its own unique wisdom, and you're the expert on your body. Nobody knows your body more intimately than you do. So perhaps we might experiment with small nonviolent practices that feel good in our body and just begin to see what you notice. Because as our text continues, we know that the whole of creation has been groaning in pain until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies are waiting for that comforting feeling of oneness with the rest of creation, to feel that relief from the pain of participating in violent systems. These words etched in stone at the MLK Monument in DC read, We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. I've been listening to black scholars who are 
illuminating this idea that every form of human violence is related to every other form of human violence. Sil Ko, seen here on the left, she and her sister Af, A-P-H, on the right, they're working in the fields of philosophy and ethics. And they are elucidating the oppressive narratives which allow violence toward humans and non-human animals to go unchecked. And I want you to hear from Sil. She's a fabulous orator, and her words are challenging. And so I, I want to let you know that also we're headed to a hopeful place where in a moment I'll offer some concrete ideas of what this can look like in practice. So here is Sil giving a keynote at the Brooks Institute in 2020. Let's take a listen. What black veganism wants to propose is this. Let's look at racism. What do we do when we attack racism? We look at the narrative of race and we talk about how that narrative has been imposed on people, right? How this narrative has given rise to categories through which we view people. And then what do we do? We want to dismantle it. We want to dismantle the narrative so that we can break open this veil of how we see people and learn how to see them in more imaginatively healthy ways. We do the same thing with sexism, right? How do we, how do we go about dismantling sexism? How do we talk about dismantling sexism? We look at the narrative of gender, and we talk about how gender, this narrative gave rise to categories like man and woman, and how we view beings through these categories, and how this dictates our behaviors to them, and even how we think about ourselves. And the way we're gonna dismantle that, well, we gotta break apart this narrative so that we can break that veil and learn how to see each other in imaginatively new and healthy ways. But when it comes to injustice with animals, we don't do this. What do we do? We start looking at facts about actual non-human animals, and then we think this is supposed to press on us morally, which is bizarre. There is nothing about actual animals that created this narrative. There's nothing animals did, and there's nothing about animals that created this narrative, that created this myth. So why are we looking so much at them to look for the answers? In the last 528 years, there was a pivot in what a human is and what an animal is that these were race terms. How in the hell are we gonna talk about the narrative of animality and leave out 500 years of that narrative? And so the argument of black veganism is that the concept of human and the concept of animal understood racially inform how we think about non-human animals, which means well, this is the, the, the really controversial conclusion, right? That if you are a person who claims that you are anti-racist, you better have animals involved in your interrogation of racism. And if you are a person who claims that you want to do something about animals, you better have race as a part of your understanding of the narrative of animality. And that's my email address in case you uh, want to contact me about this. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, she's, um, she's a compelling speaker. Uh, leaders like Silco are, they're drawing our attention to the relationship between the violence we inflict on non-human animals and the violence we inflict on ourselves and on one another and the environment, and that violence begets violence. There's a contagion effect. And I think we know this. We know that the whole creation is groaning in pain and not only creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, that comforting 
feeling of being secure in our belonging to the whole family of creation. But I want to leave us with a word of hope, because as Paul, the author of Romans, concludes, for in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So friends, what changes are we hoping for in our relationship to the rest of creation? This Greek word for saved, sozo, holds the idea of being rescued, delivered out of danger and into safety. And this word hope, elpis, also means trust. For in trust we were saved. And we trust for what we do not see, so we wait for it with patience. We can think of trust as an automatic bodily response to encountering a trustworthy person and perceiving them accurately. And for me, as I've been reflecting on the story of Jesus and the existence of nonviolent love, I have felt my trust being restored. As a result, my ability to tolerate strong emotion is increasing, and my sense of what nonviolent love looks like in practice is becoming increasingly more clear. And these are the benefits of enjoying a trustworthy network of mutuality. And I've come to believe this is what Jesus is inviting us into. This is what delivers us from danger into safety, a safety we can feel in our bodies. So if this is what we mean by salvation, can we allow ourselves to imagine then that just as violence is contagious, nonviolence is also contagious? And can we imagine that in our lifetime, we could move toward nourishing everyone on the planet with a nonviolent cuisine? Can we imagine that in our lifetime, we could reduce human violence towards animals in the environment dramatically? And can we imagine if that were possible for us to move in that direction, that creation might start to renew itself? I said earlier, I will offer some concrete ideas of what nonviolent love could look like in practice toward animals and the environment. And perhaps this might look like enjoying a plant-based meal or shopping for cruelty-free products or supporting a local plant-based restaurant or food truck. And I want to particularly encourage us to frequent BIPOC-owned plant-based businesses. Small experiments are just that. They're small but their cumulative impact can be huge. Small experiments are rooted in the Benedictine idea that a tiny seed can grow into a huge tree. And that's something that we here at Vox have come to trust, that as we reflect on the story of Jesus and what it reveals about the nonviolent nature of love, that our bodies will respond with greater trust we will start to feel more connected to the wisdom of our bodies. And through that wisdom, we'll be able to discern together how we can participate in reducing violence on the planet whenever and wherever it's in our power to do so. I opened by saying that caring for creation can feel paralyzing and also in a community like this, it can feel exquisitely pleasurable. And I'm grateful we can engage conversations like this, 
may we keep this conversation going. I look forward to learning from you and your insights and reflections. And I'll close with some tender words from Thich Nhat Hanh. Dr. King once called him an apostle of nonviolent peace. So uh, I'll invite us to take one final slow inhale together. Exhale. One more inhale. And now exhale loudly. In the words of the great and gentle Thich Nhat Hanh, we've created hells everywhere around the world. We've caused oppression and injustice, manipulated the society and ruined the environment because we are insatiable hunters, no holds barred. And yet, while sitting and eating, say, a piece of carrot or a piece of tomato or a string bean, we feel overjoyed. We eat in such a way that we keep compassion alive in our heart. While sitting and eating, we can feel very happy. We immediately feel very blessed for being able to eat food that's this simple and yet this delicious. It's such a great happiness. And whom is that happiness for? Is it a selfish kind of happiness? No. If we're not happy, we can never share happiness with anyone. So happiness in the present moment is very essential. It's thanks to this kind of happiness that we're propelled to do something, to avoid doing the things that create more suffering in the world. May it be so. In the name of God's nonviolent love, the wisdom of Christ, and the happiness of the Spirit. Amen.